0: Hey, if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and open it up to the book of Ezra. Hey, I appreciate the last couple of weeks Bishop Denham has shared, and I always appreciate good word. I've, I've heard about half of it, I'm caught up about halfway, so I'll get caught up the rest of the way, but I'm hearing great stuff. And uh, that's one of the reasons we're yoked and we're walking together is because uh, we have, we have each other to lean upon as well and that's a great thing isn't it but i appreciate i appreciate your ministry and and you speaking into the lives of all the folk and so uh, appreciate that very very much and uh, you know we get really in our journey together we get this picture of how uh, the word of the lord can just all weave together and come together and so hopefully uh, you're picking up on that and it's been a blessing to so many of you. I'm going to read out of Ezra in just a moment, Ezra chapter 4. In fact, we're, we're in the last month. This is the last month of our unceasing series. And uh, towards the end of the month, I'm going to give you the kind of the new prayer structure. And we're going to do some discipling. So we're going to have some new structure come starting in September going forward. We're still going to pray. We're going to make room for corporate prayer uh, through the week. But we also need to make room for some discipling. We also understand people have busy work schedules, so we're thinking through and working through and praying through all that we need to put together. Because how many of you know we need to pray, right? Prayer is a value. It's not just your personal value. It is a corporate value. And discipling is a value. It is not just your personal value. It is a corporate value. And so we're... We're beginning to reestablish this structure in the life of the church in order to help facilitate these things to take place. I just came back from a conference, as you know, in Iowa. I mentioned that I hear things there I hear nowhere else. And one of the things I heard, this started over a year ago, but it came out of Jeremiah 6.16. And I want you to hear this passage because it has become revelatory to me. And I think a growing number of pastors and people it is becoming revelatory for as we sort of consider where we are as a movement and where we are as a people. It was Jeremiah who said this, thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the what? One more time, let me hear everybody. Ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. One of the things that there are some of us in the American church and probably around the globe that are struggling with is how this movement that for lack of a better label we will just call the, the charismatic movement or the Pentecostal movement. I hate labels. I don't know about you. I just hate labels. But I don't I don't know how else to communicate some concepts without using a label. How in the world our movement that started out so on fire, uh, so fresh, so powerful, so anointed, so tied to the scriptures, such a restoration movement, such a movement that was recovering so many lost things, how in the world in America we have got to the place that we have gotten to today? And some of us are just asking the question, how do, you, how do you stay on the cutting edge of what God is doing? How do you stay open to the movings of the Holy Spirit? How do you stay open to the fresh breezes of God and yet at the same time not lose your brain? So how do we connect to the historic Christian faith? I don't know about you, but I am, a, I am an orthodox, which means, which means that I am not a cult. I am not in heresy. I am not in error but i connect to an historic christian faith how do you connect to this historic christian faith and at the same time not get caught up in dead religion and at the same time walk in the newness there are some of us and we're going to get to this in our new series there are some of us the minute we see anything that has to deal with liturgy or creed or anything that has to do with with tradition or history, we instantly look down our nose at it because we think it was all dead. Some of us grew up in dead churches, and we carry that wound. I know I did because I never heard the gospel in that old dead liberal Methodist church that I was in. Now, I'll just say it out loud. I never heard the gospel there. And so when I heard the gospel, and Jesus came in my life, and there was a living faith that it was ignited, it was almost like I was irritated that that old church kept that from me so I was kind of just kind of mm, at them and I think some of us have picked that up and that we've seen everything that happened back when I went to that old dead liturgical church as being of no value but here's the deal a lot of what those old assuming dead churches are doing actually came from an historic Orthodox Church, and those were the people, hear me, that gave up their lives for the gospel. They walked into Colosseums and had animals rip them apart. They were killed by the gladiatorial games, and they were the ones that raised the dead, they healed the sick, they were anointed that they could pray over hankies and aprons, and they'd send them and people would be healed, and now we're making fun of them. So there's there's something we've gotta do to connect both these two things together again. And so that's why I like going out to Iowa, and I've done this the last three years, and I've been invited to share and speak, and so obviously that's another one of the reasons I go out there, but I hear things that I never hear anywhere else. And so uh, I spoke three times in the conference. All those times were out of the book of Ezra. Some of it I have shared with you, some of it I've not shared with you. In these next two Sundays, I'm going to share some things I don't think I got to with you all, so you'll get to hear Uh, ostensibly everything that I've shared uh, when I was out there and um, I I began sharing on the book and I mentioned it to you that I was reading on Martin Luther by Eric Metaxas and Luther as you know initially did not really want to start a new church he that he wasn't in other words Luther didn't wake up one day and said I know what I'll do I'll start a new denomination and we'll call them Lutherans that's not what that's not what happened But the church was so dysfunctional, there was actually for years, inside inside the Roman Catholic Church, there was what was called a counter-reformation. Now, a counter-reformation was not not someone that was against the reformation. They were trying in another way to reform the church from the inside out, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't keep themselves accountable. And so when God began to move upon Martin Luther, uh, Luther because he knew all that had taken place eventually gets moved in order to do something that's outside the normal framework of what was known at the church at that particular time but the whole key was you couldn't you couldn't bring to account certain heresy you couldn't bring to account the error of that time period now listen to me when i say this that's our problem today how do you keep accountable that which doesn't want to be accountable Especially in our circles that are like non-denominational, spirit-filled circles. It's just, if you don't want to be accountable, if you don't want to be connected, and our movement, I think, is the worst because we're not only non-connected at times at the structural, organizational, or even pastoral level of the church, but it's hard to get people connected that are just the people of God. They'll, they'll connect anywhere and everywhere. Or the non-connect, whatever you want to call that. And, and, and so this is the part we have to begin uh, to deal with and talk about. Now, I've decided because I'm going to go into this next series, I've just decided that I'm just, I've got, I've got nothing to lose anymore. <laughs> and I'm just going to start laying, I'm just going to start laying things out. Not in a mean-spirited way. Not, I'm not mad. Uh, I'm not angry, but I'm just going to sort of lay some things out. And in that laying out, I hope truth is heard, and you understand my heart. My heart is that that the church really becomes what Jesus intended for it to be. A few years ago, uh, and by the way, I know I know that I, I, I haven't been here for two weeks, and I have missed all you guys. I really I, I really have. I've missed not being here, uh, but I do have to slip away on occasion. So I don't even know what I shared two weeks ago. So if I'm if I'm recovering some ground, <laughs> then just Call it review, all right? It'll be good review. But several years ago, there was a conference that was held in Southern California that was called Strange Fire. And the pastor that held the conference, his name was John MacArthur. And John MacArthur, I have John MacArthur books on my shelf. And he's written some wonderful books. So if you ever go get a John MacArthur book, you might actually be picking up a decent book because he's written some things... On Lordship and discipleship that actually are, are pretty good and and they would be on my shelf But unfortunately John MacArthur is what is called a cessationist and what that means is is that he doesn't believe that God really moves or works In the earth today in the sense of like we would as full gospel people in other words tongues has gone tongues have gone away and, and God doesn't heal based on the atonement and 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 he believes that has ceased and it's to me a very It's a very tenuous and a very strained position to hold. Uh, But he is the most fervent, passionate person I have ever met that's doing whatever it takes to try to bring correction to to our groups or our movement. Now, a couple of my friends from town here went to that conference a couple years ago. And they were posting a lot of the YouTubes and the videos and these sorts of things. And I was, I was kind of following along. It was a notable thing because 3,000 pastors showed up to this conference in Southern California that was held ostensibly to tell, to tell the nation just how wrong what most of us, I would assume in this room, believe. And so they attended and they were posting this. And so I, I, be, I began to interact with them on social media threads. How many of you know a few years ago, me interacting on a social media thread might not be a good thing, <laughs> especially in this area that I'm so passionate about, uh, because I came out of a, a dead cessationist group, basically. So I, I have a totally different view than that. So we interacted a couple times, and then the gentleman, the pastor, said, hey, Kevin, why don't we meet for coffee instead of you and I going after this on a social media thread? Let's meet for coffee, and and let's talk, and and maybe we can figure this out so we did we met for coffee I'm not going to mention his name some of you might even know him and uh, we had a most enjoyable conversation and we went back and forth and basically you know he said what he learned and I responded to all the criticisms that were taking place I began to point out some of the areas that uh, cessationist groups are inconsistent at tried to tell him that not all of us are like what you may see on television I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm embarrassed by some things that happen on television. So, so the problem is, and you know how this is, it's like, it's like growing up in a house with your brother. You can beat your brother's brains out because you're related to him, but you don't want anyone else beating on your brother. Isn't that right? That's kind of how I was. You know, if I'm going to fuss at charismatics, let me fuss at him because I am one. I don't want people who don't believe in the moving of the Holy Spirit think that they can presume they understand the Holy Spirit. And so we had this conversation, and it went along, and it was good, and we, we ironed out some things, and we're still good friends because we both work in the Civic Reformation area. So we're still friends. You know, we're just going to see things a little bit differently. But the last thing, what he said to me, was the thing that really stuck with me, and it's really, I think, important, and it's this. He said, you know what, Kevin, I appreciate you. I, he said, I think you're kind of an anomaly. You're kind of this unusual bird within those circles, he says, so I'm not saying this necessarily about you, because he had a relationship with me, but he said, I'm wanting to ask the question, why can't you all keep yourselves accountable? Why is it you can't keep yourselves accountable? Why is it that things are either hidden, or they're overlooked, or they're brushed aside, But they're never dealt with. Maybe, he said, maybe MacArthur wouldn't have had to have held the conference if somehow or another your circles could have spoke to or interacted or dealt with all of the incredible heresy. And I agree some of it is outright outlandish heterodoxy heresy. Why can't that happen? And and it began to really speak to me about the challenges that we have in our era. How do, you keep, how do you keep things that are crazy? How do you keep things that are in error? How do you keep things that are just simply not scriptural? How do you keep that accountable? Because in the day we're living in, our metrics are messed up. What we call church is messed up. It's all messed up. And And... And so we just, we just embrace anything that we think or feel is spiritual and we just slap, we just that's God, and we just slap that's God on it and we never once stop and ask ourselves the question, is that really in the Bible or scriptural or is this something we've made up? Is it something even if, it, even if it's something we can do? Is it, is it something we should be doing? We never ask these questions, which is why we're gonna go through this whole series because there may come a day Now hear me when i say this i would love to believe that everybody that's here today will journey with us forever and ever till jesus comes i would like to believe that but i've been around i pastored in this city now for 21 years and i've i've seen people come and i've seen people go i've seen i've seen a lot in 21 years and and i I want i i'm obviously as a pastor you want to see and and journey with as many people as possible but I, i i'm realistic enough to know this that there may be a day that maybe you'll retire and you'll go move somewhere. Or maybe you'll have a job change and maybe you'll have to move somewhere. And maybe it'll be a season's over and when that season's over, it can be handled in a wonderful, kind, gentle, appropriate way and people go their different directions. I understand all these things can take place, but here's the point I'm trying to make. I wanna make sure, at least in this group we have here, That if the day ever comes that you got to find yourself another church, that you need to be sure you're connecting to a church. And not just a concert with a devotional. Are you following me? This is important. Because because as we will find out, church isn't just this, this side thing that we do when we think we need it church is the gathering of which we come to worship god as he commands it and if you deprecate that we're going to talk about whether or not you've deprecated the very oracles and commands of god and that's serious business and i think we've totally lost that in america so whether it helps you here or not some of you i think it will help in the days to come and so we're going to talk We're going to continue to talk about recovery praying because if we don't recover the house of the Lord, your house will never be recovered. If we don't recover certain things that God says for us to embrace, you'll never get everything that uh, he wants for your life and for you to be embracing. And so we've been talking about what it means to recover and how to pray. Now I'm going to get next week I'll be in Ezra chapter 9 when the recovery prayer takes place. But for now we're going to Ezra 4. And I didn't mean to take all this time in Ezra, but Ezra has absolutely captivated me. So in Ezra chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, we read these words. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you. Now, you remember there were two waves of, of Jews that came back to Israel after Babylonian captivity in order to rebuild the temple of the Lord. We're still in the first wave led by Zerubbabel and there are these people who have already been in the land and they want to help, apparently. It says, let us build with you for we seek your God as you do. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? Initially, until you find out that that wasn't really what they had in mind. He says, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esheradon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Joshua, which Haggai will reference him as Joshua, who was a high priest, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God. In other words, there are some things you can't build with. Are you following me? And some people you can't build with. You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. Sounds a little bit of what happened to Nehemiah with Sanballat and Tobiah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So, recovery is being challenged. Recovery, whenever you're trying to recover something, I'll just tell you right now, it'll always be challenged. If you're trying to recover things in your household, it will be challenged. If you're trying to recover things in the house of God, it will be challenged. But why is it in our movement, who was so committed initially to restoring spirit-empowered ministry, is so challenged and at times missing it. Now, I'm gonna bring a little critique to our movement in order that I I wanna bring healing and hope and help and I believe ultimately power back to it. All right, listen to me for just a second. I don't know if you know how the Charismatic Renewal got started, but in 1959 there was an outpouring of the Spirit in Van Nuys, California in an Episcopal slash Anglican church that was pastored by a guy by the name of Dennis Bennett. He'd been praying for an outpouring of the Lord and God showed up in this Anglican church. And he had this experience of speaking in tongues so he began to teach and to preach this in his Anglican church and suddenly that, that Episcopal church got lit up and on fire as well. Now from 1959, that began to spring out. It sprung out to other Episcopalian churches. In fact, many of you know that here, in south carolina and especially in the low country we have numbers of episcopal churches that aren't like the national episcopal church in fact there are numbers of pastors that are bible believing warm-hearted tongue-talking continuationist episcopal pastors now i'll be honest with you i didn't get that for a long long time but you have to understand that the beginning of the movement started in an episcopal church and the outpouring began to jump over denominational lines. Pretty soon, Methodists were being baptized in the Spirit. Presbyterians were being baptized in the Spirit. Any church Baptists were being baptized in the Spirit. Now, when all this started happening, um, Pentecostals sort of looked at it and were going, what in the world is going on? Because we always felt like we were the ones that had the Holy Ghost. So back in the, again, early 60s, Pentecostals weren't initially on board with all that was going on in fact when it eventually jumped over into catholic circles that's when it pushed everybody's button and stretched everybody's boundaries because catholics were suddenly getting born again and filled with the spirit and we couldn't understand why you would hang around in that system because most of us had been taught in bible believing evangelical circles that the catholic church was the antichrist system and so now we're Pentecostals seeing catholics who are saying they're born again and they're speaking in tongues and we're tilting. We didn't, and let me tell you it was it was difficult in those early days being a Pentecostal watching the Holy Spirit move in what we call all these mainline denominations because we thought they were all dead and dormant and now all of a sudden some of them are getting filled with the Spirit and it's, it's just causing us to go tilt. There were all sorts of doctrinal uproars in the early 60s, there was a big fight in the assembly of God with charismatics over whether or not a Christian could have a demon. Traditional Pentecostals didn't believe that Christians could have a demon because the blood broke and cleansed and all those kind of things, but it was taught differently in charismatic circles. Basically, a lot of it came because we met a few Christians that had a few demons. That's probably why some of that changed. But, but these were the doctrinal butting of heads that took place. So... So Pentecostals were not, they you know, all of a sudden there, there was this scriptural music with this contemporary sound. And Pentecostals were singing the southern gospel hymns. And so there was the, the butting of heads in this particular area as well. And, and so I'm just giving you kind of a background to this. So time was moving and we're moving through the 60s and God was pouring out his spirit. And people from all different churches and backgrounds were getting filled with the spirit. Now this is the part that was interesting, because God was baptizing Methodists with his Holy Spirit and he was baptizing Presbyterians with his Holy Spirit. On paper, those two groups are as far apart doctrinally as you can be. Presbyterians are Calvinists, Methodists are Arminians, and on paper they almost disagree on everything. These guys believe that once you're saved, you're always saved, and it doesn't matter how you live, what you do, you're saved, secure forever. And these guys believed you could lose your salvation between a.m. and p.m. service on Sunday. It was. If you got mad Sunday afternoon, you probably had to get saved again that Sunday. I mean, it was, I'm, I'm giving you ridiculous examples right now. The truth is not way over there or way over there. It's probably somewhere in here. But on paper, they were doctrinally opposite. So everybody's getting baptized with the Holy Spirit, but on paper, doctrinally, they're all over the map. So what began to happen was, is that the denominations themselves didn't know what to do with all these Spirit-filled people. In fact, for most denominations, it frightened them. They didn't know what to do with them. It was out of the box. They didn't want them disturbing service. And so charismatics, here in the southeast, but it was happening all over the nation, would go travel to different places to have these big meetings, like Montreat or Ridgecrest. In the North Carolina mountains, and and these these preachers would come in, like Bob Mumford, the Fort Lauderdale Five. You remember, like Bob Mumford and Ern Baxter and Don Basham and Derek Prince, and and I, I can't remember all five of them, but but they would come and they would teach us, and and people from all of these backgrounds these theological backgrounds would come and they would sit in these conferences and these guys were from all different theological backgrounds and they would teach us and of course kind of the mantra of those days was we believe the bible just teach the bible I agree teach the bible but how many of you know you can be teaching the bible and people can have different different views as you're teaching the bible well then, I, this is just my take on history. I'm kind of a historian. Maybe, maybe 50 years is not enough time to make historical you know, analysis, but I'm making some analysis. Since, <laughs> since there's no historian keeping me accountable, I guess I'll make my own analysis. I believe charismatics got tired of going once a year to conferences all the time or having to run around to conferences and all of a sudden churches start springing up. Our kind of churches. They're springing up, and people were running to them because God was moving. And you go to these churches, and when you get in these churches, and I bet if I went through right now, just in our group, and we're not this gigantic church, but if I went through our group, I bet if I started asking about all of your backgrounds, I bet you all of our backgrounds in this this room would be different. In fact, some of us might be just as polar opposite in some of it as the illustration I just gave. And so the question comes up is that how would you how would you begin to pastor that, or how would you begin to make sure you kept that within some scope of orthodoxy when you have so many people coming from so many different directions? In fact, I can tell you for a fact that there were times, even in small groups, because this is back now, we're in the late 80s by this time. I sat in Bible study classes or small groups or Sunday school and at Evangel Cathedral. We had all sorts of different structure, but I would hear people share from all their perspectives of their doctrinal backgrounds that they grew up in. Maybe that was a Presbyterian and there was your Episcopalian and there was your Nazarene and all of them were sharing and it's like it's all over the map. And the question is, what what kept it together? Hear me, I'm getting getting somewhere that's very, very important that you need to know. The glue that kept us together was this. It was not doctrine. In fact, most of us thought doctrine was the worst thing we could get involved in. Some of us even taught that Jesus could have cared less about doctrine, and that's not true. No, Jesus didn't care about doctrine. He just wanted a relationship. (laughs) That's not true. We won't go there. But the glue that kept us together was that most of us in the room, no matter what, what our theology or beliefs were on paper, most of us in the room had a similar experience. That was the glue. Well, yeah, you were a Presbyterian, I was a Methodist, but we both, we both speak in tongues. Glory to God. And that's how it was. It was the experience that kept us together. I remember, uh, and I love Pastor Miles. In fact, I'm going to be going up in a couple months to celebrate his 90th birthday. So hear me when I say this. I say this with all endearment. I love the man. I will celebrate his birthday. But I remember those days. I remember he would have a lot of guest speakers. And one Sunday, he had a guest speaker come in that preached one thing. And then the next Sunday, he had another speaker came in that preached almost exactly the opposite, and i was watching it and the people on that first sunday would shout and yell and wave their hand and they'd come running down for the prayer line and people get prayed for and you know i mean we had all of it it was it was it was charismatic high times nothing wrong with that but the second Sunday, they'd shout and holler and have a good, and then they'd line up in prayer lines again and get hands laid, and they'd be out again. And here's the deal. Not one of them even knew that they were hollering and and over the exact opposite thing they heard the week before. All they wanted to do was get in the prayer line and get the buzz. Now, was there a buzz? Yes. Was it God? Yes. Is it okay to receive from the Lord like that? Yes, of course it is. I'm a Pentecostal. Hey, come on. But I remember I remember asking Pastor Miles one time, and this was early, I, I said, "Sir, very respectfully, because I was learning. This was new to me. I said, "Do you know that first Sunday and second Sunday?" Do you know?" And you have to know, Pastor Miles, he's, just, he's such a, a, a large and guy. he he laugh. He'd, he'd laugh like he would. He'd say, "Well, Kevin, uh, the sheep will shake it out." That's what he'd say. I would all shake out in the sheep, you know. And so I go, okay, babe, maybe it's your church. I mean, I'm just, I'm learning. But hear me when I say this. The glue that kept it together was what? Say it one more. Experience. I had an experience. Is anything wrong with an experience? Nothing's wrong with an experience. I've got an experience. I could tell you stories of all my experiences. I'm, I still pray in tongues. I still pray in the spirit. I've been out for a time period on the floor. I've had supernatural laughter come into my life. I've had experiences, I'm trying to make a point, that the glue that kept us together was an experience, but here's the part we didn't get. Experiences do not last forever. They just don't. You you, you aren't going to continually, God, it, it isn't scriptural, nor is it historical, that God just keeps the fire hose running at you all the time. It just isn't true. Why is that? I think, I think it's for this reason. There comes a moment when he says, you're going to have to get up and walk this out. That's what faith looks like. Faith, faith, faith isn't about your experience. Faith is when the experience is over. Can you walk out all that took place and transformed you in your life? That, that's, for us, our Achilles heel. That's the soft underbelly, in my opinion. Because what happens is, is when the glue that keeps you together begins to evaporate, what do we do? It's what we've done in America. When we no longer have the ability to receive a genuine experience from the Lord, we either fabricate experience or we generate artificial experience. Are you following me? Now, I've seen this. Through the years, and I've, and, and I've been committed to the genuine. I'm not selling tickets to sideshows. I want a genuine move of God. And I believe when God moves, there's some wild, amazing things that can begin to take place. But when your glue is experienced and somehow it ain't happening, then what do you do? You begin You begin to fabricate it. Or what I think we've done in a lot of our churches in order not to alienate people is we create an environment where there's an experience. Now, you know, and this is the part that we've got to par, parse carefully. And I mean it, we've got to parse this carefully. You know when we worship, we'll turn out the lights. You know that when we sing songs, you know, that, uh, we'll use certain effects that will, help, that will help lead us into worship. There's nothing wrong with this. Nothing wrong. I went, Hannah, nothing wrong. But what we do is we create. I remember years ago when my when my son was at a church in Gainesville, Georgia. the, The musicians from another large church in town would come over and worship in their church, and they would always be amazed that at Clay's, where Clay was, the people'd raise their hands, and there was there was a sense of the presence of God there. They'd raise their hands, they'd sing, they'd sing in the spirit. And they used to always say, they said, you know, we do everything you do, but we don't get what you have. In their mind, this is what they said. We have created an environment that should solicit from people a certain experience or feeling that will cause them to connect with what we're doing, because this is what they'll say. I feel God there or I feel a presence there now this is why this is dangerous because there are moments in your Christian walk you ain't gonna feel anything and it doesn't mean that God has left you it doesn't mean that God isn't working in you it doesn't mean anything with that regard in fact sometimes God works without one single feeling I told you I told you hundreds of stories that have happened in our life and I'll tell you 99% of the time when those things happened in our life there was no feeling aside maybe from aside from joy after it happened but there wasn't there wasn't an experience that got me there but this is our soft underbelly because because this is this is what the american church as a whole is connecting to it's what millennials connect to we've got to give them this feeling we've got to give them some kind of experience we've got to give them this this sense of 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 ethereal, nebulous, uh, you know, something that they can they can feel, and if they feel it, they're good, and if they don't feel it, that's it's not good anymore. And we've created we've created a church that is the, the one big church, first church of the feel good. And it's why, listen, it's why it's difficult in an in an American church to preach not only sound doctrine, but sometimes sound correction. Because if you preach appropriate correction, everybody goes, I don't like that. It doesn't feel good. You hurt my feelings. Feelings. I'm not here to preserve your feelings. This isn't about you liking me or necessarily liking the atmosphere. This is about you understanding how to walk with God whether you have a feeling or not. I've gotta hurry. Now some of this we've gone through before, these challenges to recovery. These first two are gonna be zip zip. The first one you remember I talked about when I was with you last time, mysticism and antinomianism. There are gonna be five challenges. I originally had four, but I found a new challenge since two weeks ago. Mysticism, see this is a challenge in our circles, mysticism, I call it ambiguous spirituality. What do I mean by this? You know, in in the 13th century, mysticism was a good word because it was a word that mostly uh, Bible-believing, warm-hearted, fervent evangelicals held to. They were labeled as mystics, and they were were on target. But nowadays, that word has been corrupted. Mysticism is ambiguous spirituality. This is what mysticism is. God told me, and I don't care what the Bible says. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. If the Bible said it, it's for you. You cannot automatically say, oh, that's not for me. That verse isn't for me. See, the Bible, the whole counsel of God is for you and for me. Not just the cherry-picked verses that, that justify whatever it is you want to do. And, but we live in this time of ambiguous spirituality. And it's not just charismatics. It's Baptists and non denominationals and everybody. God told me. I can disobey scripture because God told me. God told me to disobey the very thing that he says is forever established in the heavens and will not change. Isn't that amazing? Mysticism. That's one of our challenges. I already talked about that some. Antinomianism is the rejection of the law, which is basically tied to that. Well, I don't care. I don't care that the Bible commands me to do that. God told me something different. We reject what God has commanded. It's it you, listen, we'll probably get into this more in the future, but antinomianism basically means against anomia, against law. And it means I, I there are no boundaries. I've been freed from the law. I can live any way I want, do anything I want, because Jesus freed me. Jesus freed me to go sin. Doesn't that make sense? All right, those were the first two. Now, I'm going to go through a couple others here that are challenges in our time period. I have to go through this because next week when I'm with you, I'm going to get to the prayer to tell you what must be done in order to meet the challenges. So when when we close today, everybody might not feel good. And all I have to say to that is, well, I know what I want to say to that. But I won't say that because that will hurt your feelings potentially more. But here's the, it's not all about your feelings. We're, listen, I'm gonna quote Jesus. This is where you get in trouble when you quote Jesus. It's when you love the Lord thy God with all your heart, all your soul, all your what? Mind all your So, maybe this Sunday we'll use a little bit of this, okay? And that's important. I understand you can't use it all the time. And many people already prove that. Frequently. This is, but this is a challenge of our era. Syncretism. I understand these are big words. Pastor Bear, do you use such big words? Syncretism. Four syllables. Because not everything can be communicated like see, spot, run. See, devil, go. That's what we like, see devil go. Come on. We're going to enlarge ourselves. Syncretism, and what that means is it's a blending of worldviews. In chapter 9, and we're going to get there next week, Ezra rebukes the men of Israel for taking foreign wives. And he says, put them away. Now, it almost seems odd because... Because what we begin to say is, is wow, I didn't think God liked divorce. And there are some things that Paul begins to give greater revelation upon when we get to the New Testament. And so the point I'm trying to make here has nothing to do I'm not getting into the divorce issue. What I'm getting into is the principle that Ezra was talking about in chapter 9 when he said to put away foreign wives because what was happening was that the men of Israel were marrying foreign wives and they were bringing into the relationship their gods and their idols. And what they would do is, and this is why the challenge came to them from the voices, remember, in the text that said we've made sacrifices to the gods, to God, just like you have done. What we don't see in that passage is the fact that while they're sacrificing to Yahweh, they're also paying tribute to their idols and their gods. They blended all of this together. Syncretism is blending things to where I can still, I think I can still serve God, and yet at the same time sort of assimilate other ideas, other worldviews, other thoughts, into my Christianity. Hear me when I'm saying this. Jesus is very exclusive and we don't preach him that way anymore. There's an exclusivity about the Lord. And that exclusivity is is when he says, I am the Lord God, there is none other. And this is the part in the church that never gets taught anymore. We blend everything in. in. We blend in corporate theory into our church growth methods. We'll bring in, there's a great a conference that takes place with thousands of leaders that come to every year and not one preacher gets on stage. They just bring Fortune 500 uh, executives and they bring in Hollywood celebrities and they bring in everybody to this conference for them to tell the church and leaders how they ought to be running their church. That is syncretism, pure and simple. Pure and simple. It is why when we get to the New Testament, Paul looks and he says, that we're not to be unequally yoked. This is the precept. The precept is something always gets drug in to blend to blend with our christianity. And this is the part when Ezra says put them away, he was saying this. He was saying he's saying cut off this blending. Cut it off. That there is that there is an exclusivity and there is a a purity, now I understand it's it's hard, it's hard to be 100% pure but that's the pursuit that we're in syncretism, it's this blending of. I used to be, I, I'm sorry I apologize, I repent, there was a time in my ministry that I, I read way too much leadership material and I needed to read more you know, Bible I'm here to tell you in Acts chapter 2 in that upper room, they were not creating curriculum for their next leadership conference they weren't they weren't up there targeting targeting their next most receptive, homogeneous unit that would be most receptive to the gospel. That's not what they were doing in that upper room. This is what we do only in 21st century America. Because we blend this stuff. Because secretly, we believe we know better than God. Arianism. Arius was... A third-century preacher, he was actually a bishop, he was actually a charismatic kind of a guy, and he had quite a great following. The only problem was that Arius developed a doctrine of Jesus which was, which was less than God but more than man. In other words, Jesus, Jesus in the Latin, it was called tertium quid, in between. Jesus was something in between God the Father and mortal man. And that's how he tried to explain who Jesus was. It was called arianism and basically what arianism did was it diminished the stature of Christ's lordship now Arianism comes in many forms these days for instance. There are people who teach today in non-denominational Supposedly Bible believing churches. They teach that somehow Jesus is different than the God of the Old Testament I'm going to give you a clue. Jesus was there in the Old Testament when God spoke in the Old Testament, Jesus was speaking in the Old Testament. Jesus was there. He has always been, he shall always be, and shall forever reign. Je- there never was a time Jesus wasn't. And, and, and Arianism diminishes Christ's lordship. Christ is Lord over everything, including the Old Testament. And he was there. He was there in the battles. He, sometimes he showed up in these pre-incarnate Theophanies that were called the angel of the Lord. I believe that was actually Jesus coming in a, in a pre-incarnate picture of him. The angel of the Lord. It, it wasn't a angel of the Lord or an angel of the Lord. Excuse me, I, I need to speak better English than that. But it was the angel of the Lord. Jesus. But Arius said, no, 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 Jesus is, and you've heard this preached. You know, you know, yeah, yeah, that Old Testament stuff. Andy Stanley said this. Christians need to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. Andy Stanley said that. He shouldn't, it shouldn't bother him. He said it four or five times now. On, so people say, really, you're going to say his name out loud? Well, he doesn't care. It's all over social media. <laughs> Don't unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. If you unhitch yourself from the Old Testament, you'll be incomplete. There are, there are important understandings. The law is an important feature of why in the world you were even able to comprehend salvation. Arianism. There's so, many, so much I could say about it, and I must move on. Then finally, number five is the one I added, because I felt like it was necessary. Pragmatism, or in other words, acting on what works. That's pragmatism. If you go look it up, pragmatism means acting on what works. Hear me when I say this. That if you read your Bible, even into the first few pages, you're going to find out that the Lord will challenge you to do things that by the natural mind, have no business working. Do I have to go through all of the of the passages? You can't even go through all. Noah had to build an ark. Nobody thought that was the pragmatic thing to do. He said it's gonna rain, and they all said, What's rain? Doesn't make sense to me. It's not pragmatic. You're spending your money foolishly. This you're silly. It looks looks crazy. How many of you know Noah Noah was the smartest guy eventually? I mean, we could go through this. Pragmatism. Acting on what works. Well, this is what works. I, I, listen, I, I can apply this to church life, but I want to make sure you all are getting this. How much of your life is done pragmatically? Before you even ask yourself the question, what does the Bible say? Or maybe what may, may God be speaking to me that can be confirmed by the scriptures? But the first thing you do is you simply say, well, What works? I guarantee you, Christians do this all the time. You know, I shared with you even on, like, on tithing because tithing never works. Never works on paper, but we're just pragmatic. It'll never work. This is what'll work. Makes sense to me. God understands. He'll endorse it. Pragmatism. We never ask the question: Is it biblical? Is this what God has said? Can it be confirmed by the scripture? We never ask this question. The first thing we say is, does it make sense? Does this make sense? It doesn't make sense when all you have is a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil and you give it away. That doesn't make sense. What works is you hoard it and you keep it. What makes sense? It doesn't make sense to, to to put down your nets, to leave your businesses and follow the Lord. That's not very pragmatic. It would be more, i tell you what the Lord's will is. You go ahead and make your first 10 million dollars and once you've got 10 million stashed in the bank, then you can follow Jesus. That works. That makes sense. I am telling you, that is a disease in the church today. We're all doing what makes sense. This is what corporations do. This is what Walmart does. This is what, you know, Fortune 500 companies do. This We need to franchise everywhere and put our label on it. Why? Because it works. And if it works, it must be God. No, not necessarily. There's a lot of things that initially look like it works that may not be God at all. Now I'm going to finish. I'm going to go ahead and finish here and tell you a story and then we'll be done. I was reading the Luther book and I was reminded of what finally pushed Luther over the edge, and it's a really kind of a funny story. It's about a a guy by the name of Johannes Tetzel, or what we would call him, John Tetzel. It became the flashpoint of the Reformation. Listen to this story. It's it's, it's It's kind of a crazy, funny story. Tetzel was this bald, chubby, Dominican friar who had an incredible ability to really raise money. He was an incredible speaker. And the Pope, Pope Leo at the time, had a $1 billion budget deficit in 21st century money. How did he get the deficit? Because of the bureaucracy of the church, as well as a building project he was in with St. Peter's. So he needed to find a way to raise a billion dollars. And he knew what better way to raise a billion dollars than to get Tetzel to go out and raise money amongst everybody in Europe. And so, and so Tetzel, and they knew, and this is the, this is the sad part, is that, that the pope and the church at large understood that Tetzel didn't have much character, he, he lied on occasion, he would say things that weren't doctrinally sound, but he could raise money. And so they sent him out to raise money and so his, his religious sideshow went off in his cart, and he went from town to town, and Tetzel literally had, he had illustrated sermons with banners and sound effects, and he would begin to preach to the people the horrors of purgatory, and he would tell them that they could be granted an indulgence, which what that meant was that if they paid a certain amount of money, and it was always on a sliding scale, depending on, on whether they were poor or, or wealthy, that they could buy an indulgence, and he would give them a slip of paper. And that slip of paper would basically state that all of their sins, past, listen to this, past, present, and future, were forgiven. And they had a piece of paper that would, uh, that would ostensibly prove this. You say, well, how, how in the world did he get away with that? You get away with things like this when people don't know the Bible. You know why we get. You know why everything happens today like it does, and some of us with what little hair we have, we're pulling it out. You know why? Because we live in an era that people don't know the Bible. So Tetzel's doing this, going everywhere. And uh, in fact, there's. A, let me tell another funny story within that one. There was a funny story. A nobleman came up to Tetzel, and. He asked, is it true that if I pay a certain amount of money, I can have my past, present, and future sins forgiven, that you'll give me a piece, you know. And Tetzel said, most assuredly. So the man said, well, I want that for future, for future sins. And so uh, he paid the money. Tetzel gave him the uh, certificate of indulgence. And then later on, as, as Tetzel was going down the road, uh, this nobleman uh, beat him up and robbed him of all the indulgence money that he had gathered. And looked at Tetzel, and he said, "Uh, this is the future sin for which I sought forgiveness for. (laughs) The archbishop of the area heard it, and at first was irritated, but then as he thought about it, started to laugh, and I guess they let the nobleman off the hook. But the first time Luther came in contact with this was when his parishioners came to the confessional and they showed him the certificate and they said, I no longer have to come to confession. Now hear me what I'm saying. Because of the chicanery that was going on, his parishioners were coming and saying, I no longer have to come to your church. I I don't have to come to your service. I don't have to do what you said. I've got all, it's all taken care of right here. And Luther became so incensed, that was the flashpoint where he wrote the 95 Theses and he began to put it on the Wittenberg Chapel door. He announced it out loud. In fact, it was eventually printed. It was disseminated and it went, at that time, worldwide. Now, hear me. This is why reformation and recovery is so important. It's because how many times in churches like ours, people come, people go, people do what they want, and they say, I don't have, I don't have to do what you've been telling me to do because i listened to this guy on youtube i'd i i do not it it's not it's not nearly as hard as you've made it pastor baird and i can tell you why i was the other day listening to this guy in fact i get him all the time and here it is and listen to me why does it exist for one reason, it works. Nobody asks if it's biblical anymore. It works. How could could so many people be wrong? Why, there's there's 25,000 people that go over there. 25,000 people can't be wrong. I'm telling you, there was a time that 30,000 people showed up For a war and God told Gideon get rid of all of them until you get 300 So apparently the Lord has said there are times when twenty nine thousand seven hundred were wrong My issue no longer My issue no longer is I wish more people come to church. That's not my issue anymore my issue is is it is time that God once again found the church that he's looking for. That's what we need to be praying for. And and I think we have an opportunity to make an impact in that particular area. So don't come to me and say, well, I was over so-and-so's place and this is what they're doing and you know it works. I don't care if it works. I said it for years. You could have a men's meeting, put a stripper pole in there, Dance a few girls in and you could get a great group of men to come to men's ministry. And I know some of you looking at me, all the ladies are going, you're crazy, Pastor. You're right, I'm crazy. But it'd work, wouldn't it? How far does this go? How far does it go? I know, let's have Texas Hold'em night. And we'll all drink beer, smoke cigars, play poker, have a big pot. How what? It works. It works. How far does it go when it works? Anyway. And again, what do you do in your house? Because it just works. Is it God or does it just work? This is, this is what I do. And, and I just do it because I get to do it. And it works. It's, it's pragmatic. Well, blessed be the name of the Lord. Here's the good news. Whether or not you feel good at the moment, you're going to feel better next week. But you got to walk it out this week. Because next week we're going to zero in on that Ezra 9 passage where he begins to pray, what is it that we need? And that's the part, if you'll get a hold of, God will restore his house, the glory will fall, the power will be made manifest, and God will have his church. He will have his people, and you will have some of the things you've longed for all your life. You've just been going about it maybe the wrong way. Stand with me, will you please?